I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Today, on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that brought an end to the troubles in Northern Ireland, we're rebroadcasting the first in a two-part series, Walking the Border, about the walls that divide Ireland and threaten the future. For as long as people have been building, we've been putting up walls to defend against strangers, to mark territory. On the island of Ireland, there are two kinds of walls, a figurative one on the now invisible border between Northern Ireland and the Republic to the south, and literal ones, the series of so-called peace walls built in Belfast during the troubles of 50 years ago to keep two communities apart, nationalist and unionist. The troubles are long gone. They ended with the Good Friday Agreement of 25 years ago. But the walls and the gates and everything they symbolize remain. Monuments to an impasse that still shapes politics and community relations today. This program is called The Peace Walls of Belfast. Could could I please just ask you first your name? Yeah, my name's Noel Large, L-A-R-G-E. And whereabouts do you live? Well, I, I live here now on the Shankle, just at the top of uh, Lanark Way here. Okay. Lanark Way is a, a main uh, link road that links the, the Loyalist Protestant Heartland on Unionist Shankle Road with the Springfield and Falls Road, which is uh, nationalist and Republican. Plug his name into a search engine, and Noel Large's ugly past lives on. A one-time hitman for the paramilitary Ulster Volunteer Force loyal to Britain, he's a convicted assassin, sentenced to four life sentences. He was released after 16 years under the Good Friday Agreement, and he's become a changed man. As part of a community project aimed at healing the scars... He gives tours of the old Belfast battlefields, the walls and the gates that still scar this city. He knows this corner of Belfast very well. And um, this is actually a very, a very unique place in that this, this security gate here, if you notice the, the cameras above it, that those cameras are on 24-7 and they, they, they're constantly monitoring every car that goes through and it's registration coming and going and it's unique in that these gates to my knowledge are the only ones that are electronically automatically locked and opened so maybe just back up a bit and tell me what, what are these gates called they're just called Lanark Way security gates or Lanark Way gates and uh, they were introduced during the, what we call the troubles I can't remember exactly because I, I would have been in prison as a former UVF life sentence prisoner released under the Good Friday Agreement in 1988. But 
they were introduced um, as a security measure in that this would have been a very quick getaway route for uh, travelling gunmen coming back to their safe house whether it was an incursion into the Loyalist Shankill area or an incursion into the Republican heartland of West Belfast. And I was actually, I'm now 61, but I was actually 40 years of age before I ever set foot on the Falls Road. And that's not normal, and it's not what what people uh, should, should be living like. Just a few minutes apart on foot, the Catholic Falls Road and the Protestant Schenkel Road in Belfast were on the front lines in the 400-year-old conflict of religion, class and culture in Northern Ireland. There are so many Protestants in the north of Ireland because of the vast social engineering of the 17th century. Historian Dermot Ferreter points out that the Protestants, who form the majority in the north and are loyal to the British crown, were a minority in the country as a whole, and they had reason to fear Catholicism and the people's fealty to the Pope in Rome. Ireland found itself as um, an experiment ground, really, uh, in relation to the spoils of war, that those who were involved in what we refer to as the War of the Three Kingdoms during those earlier centuries, that uh, those who supported the British monarchy were rewarded, and they were rewarded with land in Ireland, uh, and they were planted on the land of native Irish people, native Irish Catholics, and there was a massive displacement. And those who went over uh, were both uh, Scots Presbyterians, but also uh, English Protestants. And it was that mix that displaced the native Irish Catholic population uh, in the province of Ulster. We have four provinces. Ulster is a nine-county province. It's a very substantial part of the island. Uh, And that was the part of the island that they were planted on. So what we talk about as the Irish border issue in the 20th century and and the Anglo-Irish controversies of recent times, they have their roots in the divisions that were sown at that much, much earlier stage. And they're inevitably as a result of the displacement of the natives and the planting of the, the new settlers. There were very obvious, serious sectarian divides in that part of the island of Ireland. But the rest of Ireland remained overwhelmingly Catholic. Could you speak to that occupation? By the time the English settlers were colonising the northern uh, part of Ireland in the early 1600s, the English had actually been in Ireland for 400 years or so. Well, Ireland had been colonised centuries before that in the late 12th century. I mean, the Norman invasions. I mean, we often consider that to be the beginning of Irish history. It's not, of course, but it's the beginning of a particular phase of Irish history, the project of colonisation. Ireland is useful for all sorts of reasons. Uh, it can be a base, uh, it can be used for its uh, resources, it can be used uh, as a staging post for uh, various British colonial uh, endeavours, it can also be used to reward people. But it also becomes part, of course, of a much wider religious battle, the attempt to try and, and, and spread Protestant influence. And, you know, there are various revolts against English rule in Ireland down through the centuries. Uh, And one of the reasons why there is the creation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland is to try and and, and put some formal uh, structure on a United Kingdom in order to generate a sense of allegiance to a kingdom. But it's always a complicated imperial project. 
The legacy of that project was passed down the generations into modern-day Belfast. And what's left of it now, here in one of the last corners of empire, is mostly seen in these walls and gates and fences. Over the years, some of them have been loudly adorned with political statements. Others carry more amateurish jumbles of graffiti and art. And there are countless peace signs, more than 20 years' worth. 20 years and more of peace. And yet, former loyalist gunman Noah Large still feels a little uneasy walking past the open gate into Falls Road. You were 40 years old. When I set foot in the Falls When you set foot on the other side. I just, can you, for the people out of here who don't understand why, can you explain why? I grew up in the loyalist heartland of uh, East Belfast, Belmacarrot District. For us, it was them as we had to fear. The Catholics, the Nationalists, the Republicans, they were going to take our houses, they were going to take our jobs. Even though our houses were as bad a condition as theirs, but that didn't matter. So, you grew up with that perception that you don't go in there, you don't go in there, that's dangerous. And you grew up with a perception that they'd be fearful and suspicious of, uh, not simply Republicans, but Catholics. So that sectarianism is inbred. It's learned at the mother's knee, and if you... and My mother wasn't deliberately feeding me lies. She, in her own way, was protecting you against the fear that had been inbred into her. And that uh, was there from a very young age. My first primary school, Beachfield Primary, was in the heart of the Republican short strand. So I grew up with that, and I set foot more than once in Republican West Belfast, um, around 1981-82 when I was an active gunman for the Ulster Volunteer Force before I was arrested and, and put in jail but it was always in the middle of the night and if it was on foot I was always armed but to do it in daylight unarmed uh, it was February 1997 and um, I was at the Royal Victoria Hospital visiting my wife who had just given birth to our, our son and I was smoking at that time, so I had to leave the hospital to go over to the shop in the Falls Road, and I was thinking, I wonder, will I stand out here like a sore thumb? Again, not the, oh, look, there's no large, he's a well-known loyalist. It was this idea that you were believing that they're them and you're you, and they can tell you and you can tell them. Has that changed since then? Yeah, it has. The demographics have changed, and that's so important. The demographics is that you have a road here where the whole way along it, on this side you have the nationalist people living right up Cheek Mateel against the wall, yeah? And that's by choice, by the way. That's not being forced on them. They're fenced in, yeah? But the, the people here want this wall. It's a comfort blanket, and people think that they need it and yet, that wall could be taken down tonight. So if, if it can go down tonight, why isn't it taken down? The problem is, they let the, the slowest thinker that lives here dictate the pace. And the closest they've got to taking them down is, they've removed some of the iron gates and made them more see-through. Does that make any difference? No. So uh, we're just walking along the short strand neighbourhood here. 
in Belfast and I lived not too far from here mm -hmm. but for a long time I just thought Short Strand was this road and it's a few lanes of traffic that are being funneled in and out of the city centre. The border between Northern Ireland and the Republic to the south runs for 500 kilometres between Carlingford Lock in the east and Lock Foyle in the west. Garrett Carr has walked the entire length of that border and wrote a book about it, which he'll tell us about in the next episode. But he's also explored borders closer to home in Belfast, the peace walls and barriers he's showing us in the neighbourhood of Short Strand. Why did you decide to look at this particular area? Why was this important to look at? Uh, well, I, I look at different parts of Northern Ireland in my work. I suppose some of the some of the peace walls around east and or west rather and north belfast are just sort of much better known whereas i thought this was a, in a way a more complete job almost because it had rendered what is actually a city center community or very close to the city center almost invisible i felt to, to the city so lots of people commute past it but very few of them would have would have actually ever entered because why would you? It's not on the way to anywhere. But in actual fact, Short Strand is quite a large neighbourhood, but it's sort of concealed by a landscape design, I suppose you could call it, where there's lots of use of walls and shrubbery, and that uh, you sort of forget that there's actually a big neighbourhood back there. This, uh, this is what's known as the interface area, and there's been quite a lot of trouble on this, on this particular stretch of road. It's been a, a site of riots several times over the years, probably the last time, maybe five, six years ago. And so the city has sort of conspired to make it less friendly to ride in, I suppose you could say. And it's, be, it's been become a kind of a defended space. But it's interesting because it's quite sort of subtly done. So there's actually, it isn't really about walls and barbed wire anymore. It's actually lots of shrubbery being used to conceal people's houses. Security cameras are placed here and there quite discreetly. And the whole thing is designed to just move people move in and out of it very quickly and probably not even realise they are, in a sense, surrounded by security features. Could you just, sort of, for those of us who wouldn't know, who's, who normally would be riding? Why, is they, why are they riding? Well, we've had agitation lately. We had a thing called the flag protests, which is all about uh, Belfast City Hall deciding not to fly the Union Jack every day of the year. And so that set off a whole set of protests and riots. And then there can be just general converse, uh, confrontations between gangs of youths falling down on political lines, though, roughly. So Short Strand is sort of a nationalist area, but then just up along the street there are unionist areas. And uh, there's a cultural clash there that some, sometimes spills out into violence and rioting. What's it like living in a neighbourhood like this? Well, I think Belfast is a city that's very compartmentalised and people live in a compartmentalised way and it has no effect on me living near it. And even when I speak of uh, riots and things that have occurred here, these are sort of isolated nights that just sort of come and go and they're just sort of part of the, part of the fabric of the city, part of the culture of the city even. And uh, one doesn't get too angsty about it. Well, one might get angry about it, and hopefully it will inform how you vote. Uh, but I don't consider it some terrible oppressive sort of force in my life. The occupation of Ireland over so many centuries had a profound effect 
Anglicisation was a huge impact and influence. Uh, the idea of a native culture being displaced or complicated, native Irish speaking, native Irish traditions, uh, there are also huge uh, religious implications. You know, the vast majority of, of the Irish population, it becomes very difficult for them to practice their religion. There are penal laws from the late 17th century that penalise Catholics uh, and make it as difficult as possible for them to practice their religion. Um, so there are religious implications, there are linguistic implications in relation to the survival uh, of the Irish language. There are obvious political uh, implications in relation to instability and contested identities because there are those who you know, are planted in Ireland uh, and go native. Um, so, you, you know, you're, you're not just dealing uh, with uh, those who are native, are indigenous. You're also dealing with those who are planted there uh, and then develop their own uh, sense of what they are and their own identity. So contested identities is really the ultimate legacy. And in that sense, the province of Ulster does develop in a different way. Uh, and there are long term effects uh, that become particularly obvious during later stages like the Industrial Revolution, for example, because it becomes the most industrialised part of the island. But there's also the ongoing religious divisions that that does impact on the way that society operates and intercommunal relations in a way that it doesn't to the same, same effect in other parts of the island. So Ulster is certainly developing a distinct identity that is different to the other three Irish provinces. Ulster, with its different culture, would become the arena for a conflict that would destroy both families and communities. It became inevitable when the nationalist movement of the early 20th century saw Catholic Ireland rediscover its own ancient culture and the idea of an independent Ireland. Ultimately, with the coming of a republic in the south and with the north carved off as a separate entity, this city, Belfast, was fated to become the epicentre of conflict, Catholic and Protestant forced to live together. What about... The, the, the whole notion of segregation, as you say, it's kind of this geography that most, I would venture to say most of the world isn't familiar with. I just wonder what that does, even at this stage, when, you, as you say, that, that the troubles are over, or yes, there's rioting, but it's just part of life. How does it affect how people think of each other? Well, I suppose it, it, it takes pe people longer to sort of get to know one another in this kind of... Uh, and it can mean old suspicions are kind of fostered. I mean, you're right when you talk about it not being familiar to most other cities, but all the same, the what's happening with Belfast is a little bit like the gated community phenomenon. And Short Strand is sort of like that. It's a kind of a gated community. We're just coming around the corner now into one of the few inlets into the area. And uh, people just like, there's a sort of a comfort and knowing that strangers aren't going by your door, that the area is sort of, uh, yes, it's a gated community. It's, there's a, a sense of, uh, well... You called it a fortress. It has that kind of quality as well, because the wall almost completely encircles it. Different types of walls, though. Some of which you'd barely recognise as walls. Mm -hmm. But if you look at a map of the peace walls around Short Strand, you see it's an almost complete circle. Which actually is unusual in Belfast. Mostly what you get are kind of clusters of lines here and there that are almost about just dividing 
a few streets here and there. But Short Strand is actually almost completely encircled. And then even one of the large gaps in the circle, if you go look at it, you discover it actually is a wall anyway, but it's the wall of a bus depot. So it's not technically speaking a peace wall, but, but in reality, it's, 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 another, it's another barrier. Across the river in working class West Belfast, the walls are more obvious and more colorful, but they serve the same purpose. So we're just, just a short distance from where that, those peace walls are. Mm-hmm. How does that wall affect these kids and this neighborhood here? What, what, what makes this neighborhood what it is being next to that wall? It, it affects it in that um, even without the wall, when, when the wall wasn't there 40 years ago, I didn't live here then, so I can't say for certain. But the people that lived here would not have been as comfortable going down on the falls as they would have gone down this way. See? Where in your street, you go either way. And um, so in their heads, these young people are growing up. That wall is there. It's been there, and it's always been there. And so why, why would they want to take it away? People don't like change. Change challenges people. So, the, so it makes them feel more secure? It makes them feel more secure because they've grown up with the idea that that there's there to create peace. You see? It's, you're saying it's not there to create peace? Well, it's not creating peace now because it's actually a, it's actually a barrier to peace in the long term because 15, 20, 30 years from now, if we don't... You can take them all away, but if you're still living side by side, there is no integration. We need peace and we need people to stand together, not just as unionists, but together on both sides, because people had come to that point where the violence had reached the place where it was going nowhere. And Republicans, you know, Republicans didn't get up one morning and decide, you know what, all this, viol- all this violence is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. They get up one morning and say, you know what, all this violence isn't getting us to where we need to be. Did you, did you get to that point, sorry to interrupt, but, but before you went to prison? No, I was five years in the life sentence. I was 30 years of age when I got to that point. But I got there, that's why I said, you know, that it was late, but I got there. The point I'm making is that I desire peace. I want peace. And that's what we're on, the journey that I'm on. Just a quick last thing about, the, about what you're doing now. What, what, what are you trying to accomplish by doing what you're doing now? What I'm trying to accomplish is I'm trying to create the conditions whereby young people do not grow up with an attitude that um, it's right and justified to do the sort of things that I was doing. That those things might well have seemed justified at the time, but they, they were wrong, and, they had, and not only were they wrong, but they achieved nothing. They made things worse. Meanwhile, the remaining walls sit in a kind of limbo, somewhere between war and peace. Did the peace walls keep the peace? Well, that's a good question. I suppose people feel like maybe they're not vital, but why get rid of them? You don't, there's no compelling reason to get rid of them. The compa- I think there are compelling reasons, but they are rather more abstract, almost emotional ones. So did they keep the peace? I'm not sure. One person from this area told me that he thinks sometimes kids throw bottles over the peace walls 
just to see if they can. So in a sense, they wouldn't bother throwing the bottles if the, if the peace wall wasn't there to try, and, to try and beat. It gives them a kind of a challenge. Therefore, they're magnets for trouble in a way. Can you talk to me a bit more about that emotional explanation for why it's comforting? You said it, it's a bit emotional. Well, there's still a lot of trauma hanging around. We've had a, a long period of a kind of low-intensity conflict, which has left scars on people and left suspicions and anxieties that are just kind of there bubbling. And so something that simplifies things, that demarks your neighbourhood and gives you a sense of uh, safety, I can, I can see why people might cling to it. You came and talked to lots of people in this neighbourhood. I've been around this neighbourhood a few times, yeah. I, I, I live not too far from here. And it's funny because you feel a bit like an explorer, even though I'm actually just about a quarter of a mile from my own front door. But I suppose that's part of the effect of this fortress around Short Strand. That uh, it becomes, it's, I suppose it's quite inward. It inevitably makes it quite inward. And it does actually feel like a village. It's sort of interesting that it ends up taking on its own identity. And I suppose that's reinforced by the wall itself or by the walls. It may be that the walls were the dominant force shaping that Belfast community's identity in recent years. But that identity was ultimately shaped by the conflict. And over the centuries, an Irish identity in the larger country was also being framed in seemingly endless conflicts with Britain. 1534, 1641, 1798, 1803, 1848, 1867 and 1916. What you see over the course of centuries are waves of rebellion, of suppression of rebellion and then resurgence of an independent spirit or demands for recognition of Irish nationalism. So it goes in waves, it's cyclical. Um, Those who strike for freedom in the early 20th century see themselves as inheriting a tradition they see themselves as representing a continuity of separatist spirit. Now, separatist can be defined in different ways uh, during different centuries, uh, depending on the era. But broadly speaking, the separatist impulse is that there would be more control over Irish affairs. For some, that's about complete separation. For others, uh, it's about a degree of devolution or local autonomy. Um, but those rebellions come uh, in, in waves it, it comes in cycles. There can be very brutal suppressions of Irish revolt, and there were down through the centuries. Um, and you see, even in the early 19th century, the rebellion of Robert Emmett, which again is not at all a large-scale rebellion, but it generates fear, and it generates a very uh, hardline, determined response to absorb Ireland even more uh, into the British Empire. Uh, and even the Act of Union, in 1801, which is a response to the 1798 rebellion. Uh, That, again, is about trying to deliver an emphatic response to to yet another wave of Irish trouble. Uh, So they are seeking to try and and absorb uh, and stamp out Irish separatist sentiment. But it never works. Uh, And it never could have worked because there was always going to be that culture of Irish separatism. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada 
across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is the first episode in a series called Walking the Border, first aired in 2019 and repeated today to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that brought an end to 30 years of sectarian violence in Ireland. In this first program, we're visiting the peace walls in Belfast, built to keep Protestants and Catholics apart during the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland that began in the late 1960s. In the aftermath of Brexit, tensions arose once more. There are hard men on both sides, and there have been sporadic outbreaks of violence. The troubles are not quite over yet, and the peace walls are still standing. The question remains, do peace walls actually keep the peace, or do they create a greater problem, keeping communities apart, making reconciliation even more difficult? This episode is called The Peace Walls of Belfast. So you listened to the to the messaging and the ideology, but then you you started acting on it. How did that how did you get into that? Well, I I get into it because I I considered myself uh, if you like today they would see it as uh, being radicalized. But for me, my family had moved just a year before the troubles broke out to about six miles out of East Belfast to the very edge uh, to a green belt, an area called Undonald. And I grew up in a brand new uh, working class housing street. His radicalization, as he calls it, began when he started to lose friends to the violence. A Catholic friend he played soccer with suddenly disappeared when his family moved away. Then came the day when another friend's life was brutally snuffed out. And then the next year to Bloody Friday happened, the IRA planted 23 bombs and 22 of them exploded within an hour, inside an hour. And that was a, a day, it was summer's day, it was in July. And I, um, I was living, as I say, in the edge, six miles away, but I could hear the bombs and see the, the plumes raising. And when I watched the news that evening, one of the, the bombs exploded was, was a no warning bomb, a um, car bomb out, planted outside the Oxford Street bus station in Belfast. And it killed a number of people. But one of the people killed was a, a friend of mine that I went to primary school with and lived my street, Parker Street, called Billy Crothers, known as Custer. A very, very good footballer. And he was blown to bits and what made it worse was when the news was on it was showing you the security forces the firemen the ambulance men uh, scraping bits of bodies with shovels and lifting them until uh, bin bags 
And I knew that Billy Crothers Custer was being put in the bin bag. And that so that's traumatized. That may be a word to use, but that had such an impact on me because this was a wee lad who had done no harm. This was a wee lad who was destined, perhaps for greatness. And, um, you know, that's how easy it is to, to, to snuff out a life. And I became more and more determined that as the years went on, I got older, that the British government were not interested in defeating the IRA militarily. They were appeasing them secret negotiations, secret meetings and all that. And if the British government had to take on the IRA like they took on the Argentinians at the Falklands, then plenty of young men like me wouldn't have joined organisations like the UVF. We would have joined organisations like um, the police and the army. So that's where, where my um, decision and influence to, to join a paramilitary group came from, and I joined the UVF. The UVF, or Ulster Volunteer Force, was a violent Protestant militia set up in the 1960s as a counterbalance to the equally violent Irish Republican Army, the IRA. We declare war, their manifesto said, against the IRA. Known IRA men will be executed mercilessly and without hesitation. The violence took the lives of more than 3,600 people in street attacks, car bombs and explosions in pubs and restaurants. The Troubles, as they were called, also saw riots, protests and prisoner hunger strikes. It was in this period that peace walls started going up in Belfast neighbourhoods like Short Strand. Monuments to exclusion and inclusion. And even in peace, many still preferring it that way. Well, I think you could probably go to any community in North America as well and ask people why they like to live in gated communities. And they might say, well, the threats are sort of vague and non-specific and may never happen, but if one can have an extra bit of security, then, then why wouldn't you take it? But I'm sure there are many people here who'd rather be, be done with the peace walls as well. But maybe they'd think, ah, you know, maybe just give it another couple of years. But I'm sure a lot of people would aspire that that they would eventually be removed. Is that a realistic aspiration? Well, that's a that's a policy aspiration that, that they're supposed to be all gone by 2022. I think it is. That doesn't seem very likely at this point. Why do you say that? Because there's just still so many of them, and they're still quite they're still quite embedded. In some ways, it's the traditional troubles era peace walls, the peace walls from say the 1970s. They would be the easiest to get rid of because although many of them are very imposing, they are simply walls. They're just bricks and mortar and, and uh, steel capping. So you could just dismantle them and then chuck them away and that would be done. What's harder to fix are the, the areas like the road we've just looked at on the, uh, on the south side of Short Strand, where the security features are sort of landscaped into the zone and so it becomes this sort of wide band of fencing and shrubbery and security cameras and simply the fact that there's no, uh, no allotments for business or anything like that. So the whole zone is sort of diffused with security concerns and deadened. And it would take a long, long time to, to rehabilitate an area like that. 
And and it's one thing to remove walls and bricks and fences, but it's another thing. There are borders of in the mind that are much much more difficult to remove. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. I mean, at the moment, yes, the border is reflected in people's voting patterns also. So at the moment, people are voting to two extremes. Uh, the Democratic Unionist Party on one side and Sinn Féin on the other. They're locked in a kind of a, a, a completely dysfunctional stasis. I joined the UVF as a 17-year-old. I joined the Youth Wing, the Young Citizen Volunteers. But it was only when I became 22, 23, I was uh, married with a daughter, out of work, and I, I became involved in a UVF unit in East Belfast. And uh, this unit were much more active. And around the time of the hunger strikes, I, 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 made myself, I volunteered, uh, made myself available. And I basically was asked what I was prepared to do. And I, I told them I was prepared to do anything and everything except for bombings. And I didn't make bombings because I didn't know how to make one. And I didn't fancy carrying one that was made by somebody who didn't know how to make one. You ended up with a life sentence. Four. Four. Four life sentences. Four life sentences. And 357 years for all the other offences, like attempted murders. Could you just explain the four life sentences? If I was convicted of uh, my part in four different murders as a gunman and played roles in, in the murders, including being the gunman to um, the last murder. I was in a, in a position of authority. I had rank and I um, would have been basically the man who um, identified the target and planned it from start to finish and um, picked the or chose the volunteers who were, who were up for, for going out and actually doing doing the what we call the hit and uh, my role there would have been um, while I was not at the scene I was involved in murder and um, I was given as I say four life sentences and um, had charges like attempted murders uh, conspiracy to murder bank robberies armed robberies procuring weapons training others and use of weapons all those sorts of things What's the wisdom that you can pass on to the younger generations that nobody else who hasn't been through what you've been through can possibly pass on? There is no cause, no cause in the world that uh, is worth the shedding of innocent blood. No cause. And United Ireland, it'll never happen in my time. Not because I don't want it to happen, but because see the Republican and Loyalists who were involved in everything that went on. Yeah, They have put that back because when you look at the, the flag of the Irish Republic, it's green, white and orange. Green for nationalism, orange for unionism, white for peace. That peace is not there. And it's not there because no matter what term you come up with, a new Ireland, a green Ireland, a united Ireland, it needs people to be united. And what we have done is we have divided the people and isolated the people even more. So. The young people, there's nothing wrong with having ideologies. There's nothing wrong with being a Republican. There's nothing wrong with being a loyalist. But 
what is wrong is when you try to impose your ideology on other people by the use of force. Those days are mostly over, but the walls and gates remain. Just off the Falls Road, where North Howard Street meets Cooper Way, there's a high cement wall extended with steel panels and wire fencing to about 8 or 10 metres. There's a set of gates with locks here, too, all relics of the nights when communities at war exchanged volleys of Molotov cocktails, when the hard men could come by at any time of night to break down a door and kill someone point-blank. These days, the gates are still closed at 7 p.m., out of habit mostly. And just in case. I'm Rebecca Coggles. I'm 16 and I live in Glencairn. My name's Glenn Doherty. I'm 15 and I live in Westway. My name's Naomi Burns and I'm 15 and I live in the New Lodge. These three friends from Catholic and Protestant families know nothing of the Troubles. They were all born after the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. They tell us where they live, and if you know how to decode the locations where they're from, that tells you what denomination they are and what community they belong to. Because old prejudices and fears die hard, it's only recently that they've ever met anyone from the other side. They're involved in a youth project run by Springboard, a nonprofit that puts on programs to foster relationships between the communities. On the program, we all like came together so that we could like break down the barriers of Catholics and Protestants communities so that we could all like meet people from the other community who are around the similar age as us so that we know that that's not all bad. So before this program had you guys met people from a from the other side from a different religion? I didn't know people from like the Catholic community because like where I live like it's only Protestants and I go to like an all Protestant school so I wouldn't have had the chance to meet Catholics. Um, I knew Catholic people from going to choirs and stuff. I have met um, people from the other community and like realised we're all the same like, we're all the, all the same people and it doesn't matter what religion you are So now you think that I wonder at the beginning before you ever met each other or before you met other people from other communities what you thought It's different before like you start to get to know them because like you don't know if they're the same actually because you've never like been introduced to them and you've never actually found out what type of people they are like they're all kind of like grouped together as like oh they're those type of people but then whenever you get to meet them like you find out what type of people they actually are for themselves what sort of questions would go through your mind that you really desperately wanted to ask these people who are your same age look like you but who are from a different community well to me people are just people so the only question that i would have asked would be to someone who didn't see it the same way i did and it would just be why why do you see that we're different whenever we're all just people? What do you think their answer would be? Why do you think they don't see everybody just as people? Just because of the past in our country and like the things that have happened. Like, like whenever our parents were young around our age and there was lots of bad stuff going on, like the bombs and like paramilitaries all like fighting one another. And it was just, and that was all very religious and it was between Catholics and Protestants. So it gets passed along through generations, which I don't think is correct. What I'm hearing is that it's young people no matter what their backgrounds are, kind of versus maybe an older generation that thinks differently. How yeah, do you see it? Because, like, when we're growing up, like, we weren't growing up whenever all the troubles were going on, so we weren't in the middle of all the fighting between the Catholics and Protestants. Like, it's not... There's no more fighting anymore, so we're just able to be, like, friends and not have to worry about each other's pasts. And, like, we might not have even knew what even happened in the troubles. Like, Can I ask you what your family told you? Like, what they taught you about... Catholics. Well, it wasn't really told about them. It was just like they're on the other side, like they're not us. Like, 
and it was more like my grand and stuff would be like but they're Catholics like you're Protestant like they're not us like we're different to them what would they think about you hanging out with Naomi here they're okay with it now because it's fine now because there's no more fighting no more so the creation of the Irish border in 1921 underlined emphatically that there were two Ireland's the dilemma for the British government was how do we respond to developments in Ireland over the previous couple of years? The 1918 general election was a seminal election in Ireland, as in the rest of the United Kingdom, not just because men over the age of 21 and women over the age of 30 could vote for the first time, not just because the electorate was hugely expanded, but because there hadn't been an election since 1910. And because after the 1916 rising, there had been this resurgence in separatist Uh, Republican sentiment. The dominant political force in Irish nationalism, the Irish Parliamentary Party, is on the wane. Sinn Féin is on the rise and Sinn Féin triumphs in that election. It wins 75% of the Irish seats. And what you essentially have is three quarters of Ireland, of the island of Ireland, have endorsed Sinn Féin, have backed Sinn Féin's manifesto. And what is that manifesto for? What that manifesto in 1918 declares is that if elected to Westminster, Sinn Féin members of parliament will not take their seats, they will set up their own parliament and that they will declare an Irish republic. Northern Ireland goes in a very different direction, clearly is unionist dominated. So that's what Britain is faced with. It comes up with this solution of the idea of two parliaments for Ireland, It was a compromise that nobody wanted because unionists actually want the whole of Ireland to remain in the United Kingdom. Republicans don't want anything to do with the United Kingdom. British politicians knew that the partition of Ireland was not a good idea uh, in practical terms because what you were doing with a very small geographic region was you were dividing it. And even on economic grounds, it didn't make sense. Uh, And they also knew that there would be those who would never reconcile themselves uh, to a border anyway, that this could become a festering sore. So they do create this new state Uh, of Northern Ireland with its own parliament. Uh, They then eventually agree a ceasefire with the IRA, um, the military wing of Sinn Féin who are fighting uh, a war of independence. They agree a ceasefire and negotiate a treaty that leads to a free state uh, in Southern Ireland. And there you have, by 1922, the two states. The question is, what's going to happen to that border? So where are we here? What is this wall here? Well, Well, now we're just on the edge of Short Strand inside the walls and we're alongside a section of traditional sort of peace wall, Troubles era peace walls, probably from the 1970s and uh, so first of all you've got about seven foot of brick wall and then there's some steel sections and then it's been extended at some other point another uh, another 40 feet maybe with uh, uh, more steel fencing to stop objects being thrown over. So it's pretty imposing it's pretty ugly. It's about, what is that, a quarter of a mile long maybe, this section. And uh, this, yeah, this, this is one boundary of Short Strand. So 40 years, I mean, it, it really is just part of the landscape at some stage. One can imagine if you actually lived, so there's houses, terrace houses facing it. And one can imagine if you lived there, you'd probably just be wholly used to it. And you might even enjoy the peace of it in some ways. The street's very quiet, children play on the street. And... Uh, it's partly because it's, it's an enforced cul-de-sac 
by this uh, extensive stretch of wall. Can you explain why this wall is here? Well, this was built during the Troubles after, uh, after some sh shootings where people had come in and, in and out of the city centre and in and out of Short Strand easily from various neighbourhoods further to the east. And so they'd just been able to run out. And eventually that resulted in the building of the wall. Then I suppose it would have been extended when people started to throw objects over the wall. Just random acts of uh, vandalism so that that would explain the, the added height the original wall was simply a uh, to stop people going back and forth and then the great height is about stopping missiles and if i may be really pedantic if i can just ask on the right hand side here who, who lives there well so we're in short strand which would be largely a sort of a catholic nationalist neighborhood and then just over the road you are over the wall rather you've got coup in place in different streets in what would probably be more a unionist neighborhood hence the wall and those divisions have no doubt been reinforced by the wall the last time i was walking down here actually i saw a man on the other side of this wall washing his windows on the top of his ladder and it was really striking because he was only about 20 feet away yet there's this real sense of remoteness and you felt like you're looking at somebody through a lens or something and that kind of impact of the wall must be filtering through society all the time where things get very abstract funnily enough i used to live in dublin and uh, I lived for a while opposite Mountjoy Prison, which is quite a very large prison, not far from the city centre. And it was actually a bit like this, because we, there was a row of terrace houses, and then across the road was the wall of the prison, which is about 70 foot tall, grey brick. And it did strike me there as well that the people who's, there were people living over there, but their lives were completely abstract to me, completely inconceivable to me, really. And I guess my life was inconceivable to them as well. And most of the time, we just didn't think about each other. How closely to that would you describe the lives of these two sides of this of this wall? One imagines they could well be working together in city centre businesses, but uh, but their but their but their homes are, are divided. Back in West Belfast, that colourful, imposing wall and fencing that Noah Large had pointed us to draws a steady crowd of tourists. There is an effort underway to gradually remove those walls, and some have already come down. But the walls remain a daily challenge for Rebecca, Glenn and Naomi. They're committed to breaking down barriers between communities and building not walls, but bonds. What do you guys see when you stand here next to this gate? What do you, what do you see? A division, which I don't think should be there. I think the gate is, itself shouldn't be there. Like, I don't understand why there's like... At certain times of the night, the gate closes, so you can't go. Th you can't drive your car an easier route. Like it doesn't make sense, because you drive your car at that time during the day, and no one throws a brick. So why they're going to throw a brick at like nine o'clock at night? Like it doesn't make sense. It's funny, eh? Yeah. You think it's funny? Yeah, because I don't see the need for it to be there anymore. Like we can all be okay with each other being whoever we want to be, and it's, there's no need for it anymore. Do you think the older generations feel the same way? Some of them probably not so much because of the way that they were brought up and the way that they were in the middle of it all. Mm -hmm. It's like a big prison. It looks like we're all closed in on one another and we all should be like running about, having friends, like friendships. As Ben said, going out at night, we should be able to do that and going to your mate's house. Prison, yeah, it's, it's a big prison cell. Each community's in like yeah. a pr its own prison cell after like eight o'clock at night and it doesn't make sense. <laughs> So you guys are working at trying to change those attitudes. Yeah. So what's, how do you erase these walls that are in people's minds? 
What, what do you, how, how do you talk to other kids about this? Because like, we're all so comfortable with each other because we've all been educated on each other. So it's really like about being educated on each other, like passing, being educated on like what each other is. And then we learn that we're actually not much different from each other. We're all just the same. Like, mm-hmm. There's nothing to not be... Like, there's nothing to be afraid of to, like, to meet somebody else just because of who, like, what the religion is. When something happens in the news or, or, you know, when you hear about the division over and over, when do you get worried? I get worried when I hear about thing, like anything to do with any paramilitary from either side because it's just... The bombs and... Yeah, like, oh. the bombs and, and, like, the idea of the gate closing doesn't sound too bad anymore when you think that someone could come through and shoot you in the back of the leg just because you look a certain way or, like, are walking on the other side of the gate. It's scary. Like, even me being here, I'm a bit worried, you No, know, being over the Tachanko wearing a Catholic school uniform. I just feel like I'm going to get <laughs> shitted at or something. Forgive me because I'm not from here, but how can they tell? Like, how can they tell who you are? If you're uniformed, the, like, people know, oh, they're at a Catholic school or at a Protestant school. That's that still goes through your mind. Yeah. You guys too? Yeah, yeah, like I wouldn't go and walk for Naomi, sorry, in my school uniform because I would be worried and the same way she wouldn't come here on her own and walk through here because it's just always in the back of your head like something could happen. But is it, it's okay because you're together? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a lot I'm different a, whenever you can see. Safe. Yeah, it's a lot different whenever you can see like two groups of like people coming together and then like if we were to walk for, straight from the Shankle to Ardoin, which is obviously then Protestant into Catholic, but if, if the three of us walk together, it would look a lot different than just us two walking into Ardoin from the Shankle, because people would be like, oh, look at them, like they're coming from a Protestant Irish, like where, where do they think they're coming from? But if we're with Naomi and... Everyone knows me up in Ardoin. Yeah, of course. But and we'd all be together. It's not yeah. like we're doing it on our own, like we're all together and it shows that we're not alone and we can all do it. Yeah. A collective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now you just have to get everybody else to think the same. Yeah. (laughs) If only it was as easy as they've made it for us to just think the same. You've been listening to The Peace Walls of Belfast, part one of a series we called Walking the Border, first broadcast in 2019. On the program, you heard historian Dermot Ferreter writer Garrett Carr, former Ulster Volunteer Force militant Noah Large, and students Rebecca Hall, Glenn Doherty, and Naomi Burns. Our thanks to all of them. The Peace Walls of Belfast was produced by Philip Coulter. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where of course you can always get our podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayad. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.